Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry. Today is the 25th day of March, and the year is 2022. Now, we have been talking about diabetes for 20 lectures. Two of them, at least, have been uh, video, and the other 18, a good half hour each uh, on the audio. I want to really complete this arc. I don't want to continue on with it, and I've had a few days where I didn't do an audio, I want to build that back up. Um, this is Friday, so try to get two or three more done during the weekend. And then perhaps finish everything off with one last video because I want to move on. I've got other topics I want to cover, obviously. So today, um, what I want to do is really dig into intermediary metabolism. We've been talking about the diabetic state. We talked about type 1, but mostly type 2. We talked about obesity. We talked about metabolic syndrome. Talked about various diseases that are associated with obesity and T2D, linked uh, w- with high correlation and risk ratios to cardiovascular disease, cancers of many forms, and of course, a enti- an entire range of metabolic disorders. And we also talked about early dementia and exacerbation of dementia during uh, early onset Alzheimer's disease. We talked a little bit about Parkinson's. We talked about prefrontal dementia. We also talked about neurodegeneration in a specific level uh, of how inflammation is induced in the microglial lineage and also how astrocytic loss of synthetic capability of making sphingomyelin at the same time um, breaking down sphingomyelin and turning it into ketone bodies and then separating out those ketone bodies into the neuron for bioenergetic carbon source. Today, I want to get into more of the classical biochemical arrangement that this whole disease network is embedded within. And where I will decide it's obvious, I will bring in where diabetes um, has a direct impact. So that's what we're doing right now. Now, if you think about how hepatic metabolism is controlled, we discussed feedback inhibition. We talked about the metabolic pathways that are in the liver. And of course, the liver has a complete biosynthetic capability as well as a complete catabolic biochemical pathway, um, genesis and regulation. So what about when you have the well-fed state, which is obviously uh, in an obese environment, but also basically now because of the ready availability of high caloric density foods, just about everywhere in the Western world, but also increasingly throughout the world. So in the liver, remember we have glucose being phosphorylated to glucose 6-phosphate. Well, that first reaction is hexokinase, and it is positively feed-forward regulated by glucose. So glucose acts as an allosteric effector for that hexokinase, making glucose 6-phosphate. Remember, the glucose 6-phosphate can then be converted to glucose 1-phosphate, and then on to UDP glucose, and you go through the Leloy nucleotide sugar pathway to make glycogen. Well, okay, so from... Glycogen, when you break it down to back to glucose 1-phosphate, that reaction, 
which is glycogen phosphorylase, is negatively allosterically affected by glucose. So glucose will induce glucose 6-phosphate synthesis at the same time it will inhibit glycogen breakdown. Okay. Now, this makes, again, biochemical sense because if you're bringing glucose into the liver, there'd be no reason to be breaking down glycogen because this would obviously be in a fasting mode. And this is the well-fed state. Let me continue. Glucose also positively allosterically regulates the synthesis of glycogen. So glycogen synthase is activated from the UDP glucose level. So you activate glycogenogenesis, you inhibit glycogen phosphorylase, and you promote glucose phosphorylation. All of that is done by glucose itself. Okay. Now, go on down the glycolytic pathway. Remember that we go from glucose to glucose 6-phosphate, and we make fructose 6-phosphate, and then we um, make fructose 1,6-bisphosphate by the activity of phosphofructokinase 1. We talked about phosphofructokinase 2, which synthesized the allosteric effector molecule known as fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. Now, fructose 2,6-bisphosphate allosterically positively regulates PFK1. So an increase in fructose 2,6-bisphosphate will increase the activity of PFK1. At the same time, that allosteric effector will inhibit the phosphatase. So fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase is inhibited. Obviously, the production then of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate will promote glycolysis and not gluconeogenesis, right? Again, this is a well-fed state. Now, there are multiple uh, possible allosteric regulations between fructose 1,6-bisphosphate and pyruvate. I'm not going to mention many except for the pyruvate kinase reaction. Pyruvate kinase is positively allosterically regulated by fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. So that enzyme is activated by one of its uh, precursors, the one that's most important because it's regulated at that PFK1, PFK2 level. <laughs> now, pyruvate in the well-fed state is going to enter the mitochondrion because essentially we're going to now convert excess glucose that isn't otherwise being used for glycogenesis to produce triacylglycerol as well as cholesterol. So pyruvate then is converted to acetyl-CoA and also, of course, oxaloacetic acid in the mitochondrion. Pyru and, and pyruvate will positively allosterically activate the pyruvate dehydrogenase, which is, of course, the enzyme converting pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. So you have acetyl-CoA then, and it's going to um, enter into the TCA cycle because it will condense with oxalacetic acid. That citrate will leave the mitochondrion, as you know, because of the buildup of NADH and FADH2. So the dehydrogenases of the tricarboxylic acid cycle will all be saturated with product. And so because of that, you get product inhibition, another form of regulation, right? Well-fed state. So citrate will leave the mitochondrion and go through ATP citrate lyase to generate oxaloacetic acid, as well as acetyl-CoA. The acetyl-CoA will then go on via the acetyl carboxylase to make malonyl-CoA. 
Now, remember the acetylcarboxylase is positively allosterically regulated by citrate in the cytoplasm, right? Citrate not in the mitochondrion, but when it's translocated to the cytoplasm. So when it builds up, it will positive, positively allosterically activate the acetylcarboxylase. Remember, it does that by causing a polymerization of that enzyme. So you make filamentous rods of high molecular mass, acetylcarboxylase. This is the most active form. Of course, the product of that reaction is malonyl-CoA, right? And that three-carbon unit is then made for condensation reactions, uh, losing carbon dioxide in the process, but then building up from C2 all the way up to C16 fatty acids. This is the fatty acid synthase pathway, right? But remember that malonyl-CoA will also inhibit long-chain acyl-CoA conversion to fatty acyl carnitines, right? So you're going to block the mobilization of any fatty acyl-CoAs in the cytoplasm to be converted to the acyl carnitine derivative going through the carnitine palmitoyl transferases one and two through the two mitochondrial membranes, making it into the mitosol so that you could ultimately do beta oxidation. Now, all that's going to be blocked in the well-fed state. So you understand now, just those are just some very coarse regulatory components that are allosteric that we can talk about in hepatic metabolism in the well-fed state. Now, contrast it to the fasting state. In the fasting state, you're going to get glycogen broken down to glucose 1-phosphate. It's going to be a isomerase of glucose 6-phosphate, and that glucose 6-phosphate is going to be dephosphorylated via the phosphatase to glucose, and glucose is going to be shipped out of the liver. This would be a process of getting glucose to satiate the decreases in glucose levels because of a fasting state, right? So serum glucose drops. you got to take glycogen from the liver, convert it to glucose 6-phosphate, ultimately to glucose, and send it out of the liver. Now, gluconeogenesis is also turned on. And I want you to understand that fructose 6-phosphate which would be an intermediate in gluconeogenesis, will negatively uh, allosterically affect hexokinase. So you won't get glucose phosphorylation. That would obviously be a futile cycle because I've just told you that you're going to get uh, phosphatase activity because you want to release glucose from the liver and send it into circulation because you have low circulating glucose because you've been fasting, right? So that's the first component of allosteric regulation. I'll tell you, fructose 6-phosphate negatively allosterically controls exokinase reaction. Now, citrate will also function to inhibit glycolysis, and it does so by inhibiting PFK1. So citrate will bind to PFK1 at an allosteric site and prevent it uh, fructose 6-phosphate can be converted to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. Now let's go on through the, through, the, through the gluconeogenic pathway. First of all, remember that you've got adipose tissue, and that's going to uh, be the source of fatty acid in the serum. That fatty acid can be delivered to the liver via serum albumin. Remember, these are not covalently associated bonding of fatty acids to serum albumin, but that's one way to bring in those fatty acids. The other is with lipoproteins. 
you also have some small amount of circulating free fatty acid and circulating free acyl-CoAs. I just told you the two main sources, lipoproteins and serum albumin. So the adipose tissue will deliver the fatty acids. You'll have these long chain acyl-CoAs converted then to fatty acyl-carnitine and hepatocyte. And then that fatty acyl-carnitine will move in through the CPT1, CPT2 pathway. And you're going to then make acetyl-CoA and ultimately you're going to make ketone bodies, right? Now, the acetyl-CoA, which is the intermediate during ketogenesis, uh, but the uh, final product of beta-oxidation of the fatty acids, right? Acetyl-CoA will inhibit pyruvate dehydrogenase. So it's a product inhibition, but it's an allosteric one. At the same time, acetyl-CoA will act positively to allosterically regulate the conversion of pyruvate to oxalacetic acid, okay? Now, that's important because once OAA is made, a transamination reaction can synthesize aspartate. Aspartate will be translocated out of the hepatic, uh, hepatocytic mitochondrion. At the same time, citrate is uh, uh, not citrate, excuse me, at the same time, pyruvate is entering. So aspartate leaves, pyruvate enters. Now there's also a glutamate, glutamine charging of transamination reactions leading to further production of amino acids for gluconeogenesis. I'm just telling you about pyruvate to OAA to aspartate via the transamination. So the aspartate leaves the mitochondria as pyruvate enters, okay? So that was, that's a couple as well. The aspartate then in the cytoplasm be converted after transamination to acetic acid and thence onward through gluconeogenesis through phosphoenolpyruvate, 1,3-bisphosphoglyceric acid, glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, fructose-1,6-bisphosphate after that uh, whole series of reactions leading up to aldolase, right? And then fructose 1,6-bisphosphate to fructose 6-phosphate to glucose 6-phosphate to glucose. So that completed that gluconeogenic circuit coming from lactic acid to pyruvate, pyruvate to OAA, OAA to aspartate, okay? So lactic acid is also coming in, and so that's a non-carbohydrate precursor. This is, a, this is the source of carbon for gluconeogenesis. So you've got amino acids as a source, and you've got lactic acid as a source, of carbon for gluconeogenesis. Now, I told you the fatty acids are coming in, they're getting converted to acetyl-CoA, but that carbon is not directly used in mammals for synthesis of glucose. So the, that carbon does not show up in de novo glucose synthesis via gluconeogenesis. Rather, that carbon is being converted to ketone bodies. That would be acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. And that will be uh, then secreted or, or it will enter circulation directly from the hepatocyte. These are water-soluble molecules, uh, easily traversing the membrane through transporter systems. So you've got fat. But now what, one other thing I want to tell you about fatty acid component. When you're doing beta-oxidation, you're also making a lot of NADH and a lot of FADH2. Now, that ADH and FADH2 will be used in the electron transport chain via oxidation from the four complexes, as well as ultimately through complex five, making ATP via ATP synthase, right? Running the whole chemiosmotic pump 
and proton pumping across the endomitochondrial membrane. But at this, and so that then will give you ATP, and ATP is a cyclic chondrogenesis. So fatty acid oxidation doesn't contribute carbon, but it, can, uh, it does contribute the bioenergetic component by producing NADH and FADH2, which become oxidized, generating ATP, ATP nesterfocalinogenesis, okay? So energy from fatty acid oxidation is used for gluconeogenesis in the liver. And as I just said, the NADH that you build up there will be used in the electron transport chain. But another thing it will do, the massive amount of beta oxidation is it'll block the TCA cycle. So the TCA cycle is not going to be respiratory, right? You'll have anaplerotic effects in the TCA cycle, meaning you're going to be able to bring in carbon in the form of alpha-ketoglutarate, for example, uh, and that will come from glutamine-glutamate couple because you can do transamination reactions after the deamination of glutamine to make glutamate. You can transaminate glutamate to make alpha-ketoglutarate. It's just the dehydrogenases in the TCA cycle won't functioning. But that's okay because all of the um, redox is poised so that the TCA cycle will be blocked at all of those dehydrogenase steps, in fact, including the malate dehydrogenase, right? So this whole thing is in poise to get carbon back into the cytoplasm for chondrogenesis, burning fatty acids that generate the energy for that. And that is the whole process. Now, one more thing I will tell you uh, is it the remember about citrate and acetylcholcoboxylase? Well, long chain acylcholase in the cytoplasm will block the acetylcholcoboxylase. That's why you won't have that reaction occurring. There are two forms of acetylcholcoboxylase. One is uh, actually resides on the mitochondrial outer membrane. That's the one that's actually inhibited by long chain acylcholate. Uh, essentially, essentially, what that's doing is blocking any de novo synthesis of fatty acid. Now, there's going to be some because one of the acetylcholcoboxylases are not inhibited by the long-chain acetylcholase, but is not also tuned up in terms of potency of activity because you don't have citrate coming into the cytoplasm. Because Why is that? Because you're converting all the carbon to ketone bodies, right? So you're not getting citrate, leaving the mitochondria. So that's during the fasting state. Now you understand something about allosteric regulation there. So remember that acetyl-CoA is converted to malonyl-CoA. And malonyl, and that reaction is acetyl-carboxylase. But you also have the malonyl-CoA decarboxylase. So that's where mal-CoA is converted to carbon dioxide and acetyl-CoA. So you have competing reactions between the carboxylase and the decarboxylase. Okay, acetylcarboxylase versus melanocoid decarboxylase. So if you do a pharmacological inhibition of the melanocoid decarboxylase in a post-myocardial infarction rat model, it actually decreases the severity of the pre-existing heart failure post-myocardial infarction, myocardial infarction. Now that is a mouthful. So inhibit the melanocoa decarboxylase in a post-MI rat model will decrease the severity of pre-existing heart failure in that animal post the myocardial infarction. So let's do some detail now. Melanocoa 
Decarboxylase inhibition is able to immediately improve cardiac function in a failing heart. That suggests that optimizing cardiac energy metabolism, the bioenergetics, may acutely and chronically, that is short-term and long-term, improve overall heart function. So both the immediate and the chronic inhibition, or in other words again, of the melanocoa decarboxylase improves cardiac contractility in a failing heart. And that's associated with an increase in melanocoa, because remember you're inhibiting the decarboxylase, and that melanocoa content is in the post-MI heart muscle. That results in a decreased cardiac fatty acid oxidation rate. So melanocoa decarboxylase inhibition improves cardiac efficiency that is otherwise associated with a reduced proton production through increasing lactate dehydrogenase 1 expression, while it decreases lactate dehydrogenase 5 expression. Now, this was published in a, a paper in tumor biology back years ago in 2003. Now, let me tell you about lactose, lactate dehydrogenase isoform 5, LDH5. LDH5 is an isoenzyme composed of four M polypeptide chains, and it catalyzes the conversion of pyruvate to lactate with an unparalleled efficiency. That is, you get anaerobic oxidation. But the function of the LDH gradually fades away as the number of H over M chains, and these are polypeptide chains in that enzyme, increases. Thus, LDH1, which is another component isozyme made up of 4H polypeptide chains, favors actually aerobic oxidation of pyruvate by pyruvate dehydrogenase. So you see how that is controlling them via that lactate dehydrogenase, pyruvate dehydrogenase couple, right? That thermostat is going to control then the relative concentrations of melanocoa, which is going to be beneficial in uh, post-MI heart failure. And this is an animal model, okay? So let me continue on here. Again, LDH1 found in all cells. So now we're talking about expression of the polypeptide. That means transcription, translation, and then uh, combining those different subunits to make LDH1. It's found in all cells, while the LDH5 isoform is preferentially only expressed in tumor cells, while normal tissues are practically devoid of LDH5. Interestingly, that means that LDH5 posit is uh, LDH positive stromal cells would be associated with a hypoxia inducible factor one alpha overexpression. So you, from that, what I just told you, it's it can be concluded, and this was backed up by research published uh, in the Journal of American College of Cardiac Basic Trans. Uh, um, Science, that's the name of a journal, okay? Transactions, so Journal of American College of Cardiology, Basic Transactions Science. It's a 2019 paper. 
tells us the following. Normal tissues utilize aerobic oxidation as a means of energy production for bioenergetics, while these tumor cells are turned to anaerobic glycolysis. We know this. We've talked about it many, many, many times. And that phenomenon is rarely followed by the mesenchymal cells of tumor-supporting stroma. So if you do a ligation of the LAD, you can generate a myocardial infarction in the rat. This is how these studies are done. So three weeks after that MI has been recorded, you see that malonylcoid decarboxylase can be inhibited, okay? That's up to four weeks. So let that inhibition or compare it to a vehicle. This would be the control. And what happens when you inhibit the malonylcoid decarboxylase? First of all, what happens is you get an increase in fatty acid oxidation. No, excuse me, you get a decrease in fatty acid oxidation. You get an increase in cardiac efficiency and you get an increase in cardiac function. At the same time, with the vehicle, this isn't with the decarboxylase inhibitor now, just with the vehicle, the opposite happens. You get in with just the vehicle after the myocardial infarction three weeks later, and you generate that MI by doing an LAD ligation at the, at the cardiac muscle, okay? At the same time, just with the vehicle, not with the inhibitor of MCD1, you get increased fatty acid oxidation, you get a decrease in cardiac efficiency, and therefore you get a decrease in overall cardiac function. So that means it promotes heart failure, right? So again, when you think about how CPT1 can be blocked by malonyl-CoA, malonyl-CoA builds up when you decrease the activity of the decarboxylase. So you block malonyl-CoA decarboxylase, you don't make acetyl-CoA, you build up malonyl-CoA, which blocks CPT1. That's how you block the fatty acid oxidation. At the same time, you don't have any negative effect on glucose oxidation. So you generate enough protons to make um, the, to uncouple, excuse me, the electron transport chain. And what this does is cause a decrease then in ATP synthesis. But you get it from contraction, then you're going to be able to um, favor a slow contractility in the heart muscle. So there's sufficient amount of ATP because just of glucose oxidation to keep the heart pumping after an MI in a heart failure um, animal model. Okay, so hopefully that's clear. This is a 2019 paper. So you see how talking about intermediate metabolism. Now, how does this all relate to diabetes? Well, you know that one of the main stays of obesity is you can have a higher propensity of myocardial infarction because you have a dyslipidemic system. You have hypertrophy in the cardiac muscle. You have a fatty liver. You have an increase in the amount of fat in circulation. That includes from serum albumin to free fatty acid to very um, low density and low density lipoproteins. All of that will then trigger a diminished ability to reuptake triacylglycerol and oxysterol 
from circulation. That would then cause triacylglycerol to build up in the hepatocyte, but also build up in the muscle, including the cardiac muscle. This can then hinder glucose oxidation. Hindering glucose oxidation then would promote fatty acid oxidation. And if you don't inhibit the decarboxylase, you see, that excess of fatty acid oxidation will lead to reactive oxygen, which can induce, because, because of what reactive oxygen does to the myocardial membrane, an MI event. Hence, you have chronic heart failure, enhanced capacity to have an MI when you have an obesogenic type 2 diabetic background of comorbidities in a human, okay? And so we, we were able to discover the precise means of how LDH1 and 5, those two lactate dehydrogenases, the malonucleic decarboxylase versus the acetylchloric carboxylase, all that L-star regulation I just went through, mediates then the control over fatty acid oxidation at the cardiac muscle, therefore preserving cardiac function uh, by using glucose oxidation to generate ATP for contractility in the heart, at the same time decreasing all that lipotoxicity that occurs because of obesity. So that's one of the uh, triggers then that, that the pharmaceutical companies looked at tried to inhibit the melanocoid decarboxylase. Right? So that is a little bit of a take-home message from some, uh, pharmaceutical work, as well as from straightforward cardiovascular disease and intermediary metabolism, all here at Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 25th of March, 2022. This is indeed Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios, wishing you a very pleasant Friday afternoon and saying, of course, bye for now.